city's been so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Porton on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its cheers. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here. Welcome to the first episode of the Green is the Color podcast. And I'm very excited to start the first podcast with the first timber, Mick Hoban. You're going to learn a lot about Mick, and I'm very excited to have him as the first guest because chances are you can connect something about your daughters or your sons or your own playing experience right now back to something he and many other U.S. soccer pioneers helped start around the game in this country. But of all the things you'll learn about Mick, the first image I want to put in your head is this. In 1975, a 23-year-old Englishman gets in a borrowed Subaru and drives the 200-plus miles from Portland to Pendleton, Oregon, to spread the game of soccer. Mick, can we start there? Yes, we can. First of all, thanks for the invite. I'm looking forward to the interview. I borrowed a car from the then-president of the Timbers and drove what seemed to be an eternity before I got to Pendleton, not knowing the size of the state at that time, I reached there and was greeted by a reception committee who put me up overnight. We conducted the clinic, went out for dinner. Everybody shook hands, and I promised to return again in the future. It was just one of very many where we went to areas in the state that hadn't before received soccer instruction, and we were treated very, very well. Yeah, this is uh, this is interesting, and this is I'm going to go off script a little bit here because it seems to me the ethos of the time was, uh, and this is, these are actually Clive Toy's words, we can't expect you to come to us until we come to you. And so there was a real sort of all hands on deck. We're here to spread the game of soccer. Yes, and that was a, a mandate, if you will, from the ownership group who were local, uh, who understood very little, excepting one person on the board, as well as the general manager, Don Paul, an NFL football star, who was himself, like Barnum and Bailey, a great promoter, and we were encouraged, uh, in fact, told to get out there and promote the game because, as we have often said since then, we are actually promoting the game first and our club second. And so that was the case with many a community, including Pendleton, where we looked upon it as an opportunity to expose that town, city, region to a sport and then our club. Fantastic, Mick. Um, so that, yeah, that's why I wanted to start there, but I'd like to move into, I'm going to get a formal introduction, um, okay. and then we'll get to the questions. So okay. from Tipton, England, yeah, so from Tipton, England, through Aston Villa, to the North American Soccer League's Atlanta Chiefs, Denver Dynamos, and Portland Timbers, where he was the first signed player for what it was then an unnamed team 4,800 miles from his place of birth. He has one U.S. cap, I almost wanted to introduce you as a, a U.S. international. Um, but as you'll hear yeah. from our conversation, yeah, what Mick did on the field pales in comparison to what he did off it. In addition to being Timber number one, he is Knight Soccer employee number one, influential to Adidas of America's soccer business success, and so much more with the American soccer scene. He can tell you about warming up with a Bengal tiger breathing down his neck, getting punched by a fan and trying to run up a concrete ramp with screwing cleats after the offender, and that was just in San Jose 
He's one of just six people in the Portland Timbers Ring of Honor, and he's currently working on a memoir of his time in the game. Uh, again, it's a big honor to have as the first guest on Green is the Color podcast, Mr. Coben. Thank you very much. It's my honor and privilege. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. So, so I want to do this. I want to. I mentioned you're actually a, a U.S. international. Um, August 5th. This this podcast will come out in September. But just recently, August 5th, 1973. So we're the 50th anniversary of your U.S. cap. It was a 2-0 win over Canada. Uh, what do you remember about that match? We were contacted by our coach in Atlanta, a gentleman called uh, Ken Bracewell, and said that U.S. soccer, in an attempt to encourage young overseas players who may settle in the U.S. to take part in international friendlies. And so a teammate of mine, Paul Child, and myself, both from Aston Villa, were invited to play for the U.S. national team against Canada up in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. As you say, we won 2-0. The coach was Gene Chilowitz, who was not only the national team coach, mostly known for being a high school soccer coach. His younger brother, Walt Chizovich, became the future national team coach. It was very informal, small stadium, 5,000 fans. I was asked to play at right back, which wasn't my preferred position. Um, And again, not not really big time, but nevertheless here I reflect back on it, remembering how I once represented the United States. The biggest thing to come from that was actually was the reaction of the British press, who basically looked upon us as somewhat treacherous. So my dad had sent me a paper clipping, this was before the era of uh, the internet, and and Uh that clipping basically said Charles and I had left England behind and in, in the backstream of our thoughts. That's interesting because if there's one thing I think we're going to get to in this conversation is a real sense for um, you and players like you played for the badge, whatever the badge was on your chest. And I imagine playing in that game was still a sense of pride, uh, regardless of circumstances. Oh, absolutely. Once we took to the field and the U.S. national anthem was played, as it was in, in front of all of our matches, including the Timbers games, um, we were respectful to to the anthem and to our fellow U.S. teammates here. And that was obviously the case then with the U.S. men's national. Most of those on that day were actually indeed U.S. citizens. Uh, Paul and I were just on a work permit visa, but we paid respect and we looked upon it as an honor, and I still do. That's fantastic. Uh, So your contributions to soccer in this country started in 1971 in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, But it also goes back further to a guy named Leo Crowther. Uh, and the path runs through through Denver uh, before getting to Portland. Can you talk a little bit about your time before you signed with the Portland Timbers and how uh, coaching and playing and spreading the game sort of contributed to that experience? Well, Leo Crowder was the reserve team coach at Aston Villa, and amongst other things, he encouraged me to take my coaching license when I was 19 or 20, um, something that most players didn't even contemplate till later on in their career with a view to a, a career in coaching. I took it, I got the, passed my certificate, and after that I took part in a business course, again recommended by uh, Leo, to go on. Again, I was the youngest on the course, most of them were in their early 30s looking for a career after soccer. Those two points and the fact that I stayed on for extra education 
uh, at the high school level for two years beyond what normally professional footballers do to get my university entrance exams done. Uh, those sort of three things came together such that when we got to Atlanta and they were in the mode of building the sport and building the franchise, I was I was comfortable with the work that I was asked to do off the field, whether that was speaking to service clubs, going out and doing clinics in communities, and traveling the state here, spreading the gospel of soccer. And that continued through to um, even your time in Denver as well, correct? It did. Uh, and furthermore, in the last year in Atlanta, when the, the Chiefs had been sold to the Omni Corporation, the, the Omni Corporations uh, owned the Atlanta Flames, the Hawks, and then what we became, the Atlanta Apollos. And during that 1973 season, my coach, again, Ken Bracewell, um, asked me if I would become business manager for the team. I took a, I did a double take and basically said, I'm not qualified, I don't have the experience, etc." to which Ken replied, I think you can do it, Mickey, as he used to call me. And so I mm -hmm. became the business manager and captain of the Atlanta Apollos in 1973. So that experience in terms of working in the front office, I worked with sales, marketing, communications, hosting, international events, all under the uh, umbrella of the Omni Corporation. And, and that gave me great confidence then in terms of working with developing franchises, which would hold me good in Denver, as well as then in Portland eventually. Yeah. So, and it, it's not just, um, you know, spreading the game on the field or it's not just about business. I remember you telling me that when you came to Portland, you told me about sitting down with the president of the team after he got home from work and over a pizza and a beer, uh, you'd tell him about the game of soccer. So you're educating the owners as well. Yes, uh, when we first arrived in Portland, the owner's wife, actually, Jan Gilbertson, uh, picked us up at the airport in her Lincoln Continental, which had its own time zone, I think. She dropped us off down at the old Mallory Hotel, the Deluxe Hotel today. And uh, that night they called to say that they wanted us to go stay with them at their home in southwest Portland. Uh, I explained to John, her husband, and the Timbers' first president, that that just wasn't done. You know, you couldn't have a player staying at the house of a president for a period of time. But John B. and John persisted, and so we moved over to stay with them. So when John came home from his work as a lawyer, John would sit down, have dinner, a glass of wine, and then he and I would sit down and start to talk soccer. And it was very rudimentary. We started with how many players on the field, what were the big regulations, such as offside and penalties, etc. And we'd order a beer, and Peter and basically will sit down for endless hours, it seemed, while John and his wife Jan scribbled notes, if you will, to get John up to speed as to what indeed <laughs> what was it about this franchise they'd just bought. So it was fun times for sure, but it, it, it let me know that at the very outset here that our owners, whilst their heart was in the right place, had very little experience in the sport. I think, uh, and I, you know, we're going to get to culture uh, and sort of a, a top-down idea, I think, in a little bit. But that's another thing that always strikes me when I'm hearing stories about uh, the Timbers early on is how there was just a desire to learn, and, and nobody was necessarily ashamed if they didn't know. They just wanted to know. People wanted to be a part of this, uh, and the players seemed to really facilitate that both on the field and off the field. 
That's correct. People like uh, Don Paul, again, as I say, played for the Cleveland Browns in the NFL. Uh, obviously, was a more than familiar with sports, multiple sports, and as part of the ownership group here, he was fully intended to grow the franchise. He never pretended to know the sport. In fact, we would laugh and joke about how little he knew about it, but he certainly knew about how to sell, how to market. And so we cooperated with him that entire first season uh, with appearances in clinics, with service clubs, sponsors, um, and supporters groups doing clinics all around the community in an attempt to sell the sport, explain the sport as we went, and also then to encourage people to come watch the games. So in effect, with 23 players, wherever it is, we had 23 um, sort of brand ambassadors, but also sport ambassadors. That's great. And I want to back up a little bit because I, I, I wanted to cover this. How did you end up as the first Portland Timber? Aston Villa had represented the city of Atlanta in an international tournament in 1969. Within that group uh, was a player in those days, Vic Crow. Sorry, he was an assistant coach in those days at Aston Villa. And they participated in a pre-season tournament for the NASL representing Atlanta. As a result of that, the Atlanta Braves, who owned the Atlanta Chiefs, struck up a relationship with Aston Villa such that in 1971, the manager from the Atlanta Chiefs came to watch Aston Villa Reserves play, looking for two players for that summer, resulting in myself and Barry Lynch, who also played mm -hmm. for the Timbers later on, going to Atlanta to represent the Atlanta Chiefs in the NASL in the, for the 1971 season. And so, so you're you're a timber, and I've got to just go back to the start. I, the first game was against the Sounders. There's a great playoff game in 1975 where Portland, you know, to, uh, Willie Anderson to Tony Betts, people rush the field. It's a great moment. And so I think rightfully so, people understand the rivalry between Seattle and Portland. But I don't think people understand that it was it was actually uh, the earthquakes that were the first uh, rivals of the Portland Timbers. Is that correct? It's correct in terms of intensity. I think the intensity mm -hmm. with Seattle grew over the years and continues, obviously, to this day. Um, San Jose, because of the proximity, we also had, there were also two British players on the San Jose squad who we knew from our time in England. Uh, we also then, in that first season, had a resident of San Jose, Nick Nicholas, and in 76, the season after, was John Smiley. And both clubs in 75 had fantastic attendance, and both clubs had small, intimate stadiums with great atmosphere. Um, some examples of that is when our motor coach pulled up in the public area outside the locker rooms, we were, we were showered with abuse whilst in the coach, and when we got off the coach, their mascot, a, a guy called Crazy George, basically got the crowd rolled up against us, and it's a very, very tight field with San Jose Spartan Stadium. Before one of the games there, as you previously mentioned, he had a Bengal Tiger at midfield on a chain. <laughs> we, we were warming up in one end of it, but we weren't doing much warming up because we were worried about this Tiger more than anything else here. So we were sort of huddled up, ready to make a run for the bleachers if it broke the chain, etc. But I'm 
some of the things, uh, one of the uh, games against San Jose, a relative of one of the players ran onto the field unobstructed by Stewart and punched Peter with, which was a That's foolish true. thing to do. Peter chased him into the stands again here, and on another occasion, Tony Betts and myself were walking up the ramp back to the locker rooms after a game, and another fan came and then punched me. I ran after him. I've still got my cleats on here, and thankfully for him, um, a policeman and the general manager actually of San Jose intervened here. Um, both teams were physical. Uh, Paul Child and Larry Calloway were two such players on the earthquakes, but we had our share as well uh, with Peter, Tommy McLaren and Brian Godfrey. None of those players would step back from the fray. So it was a highly combative game every time we played because both stadiums and both sets of fans were engaged. And because of the proximity, uh, fans would travel back and forth between the games in San Jose and Portland, which then became the model for more fans traveling to Seattle and, uh, and as the number of fans in, uh, away fans in Seattle grew, so did the intensity of the rivalry. That's fantastic. Um, it, I mean, I don't know if you can top that memory, but as a player, um, do you have any memories that sticks out, like good players? You've lined up against some pretty incredible players. Um, and I, I think I want to sort of segue that into, you know, when you think about as a player, some of the memories you've had. Also, what does it mean to be now a one of only six uh, people in the Ring of Honor for the Timbers? Um, well, certainly two of the more uh, memorable games was July 17th, 1977. We won a three-game East Coast swing, and that was the morning that my daughter, Sarah, our daughter, Sarah, was born here in Portland, Oregon. So mm -hmm. I received an early call. I was made captain for the day. We put money into a kitty to guess the weight of the baby. And, yeah. and we played against the Cosmos on that day, so it, that game sticks out in my mind. We lost. I think I was actually substituted because obviously my mind was somewhere else. It was a time right. when players didn't typically stay at home with their wives during the pregnancy. They went on the road. They made their commitment to the team. They fulfilled the obligation. Uh, that's one play. The other one you've mentioned there are the, the quarter and semi-final matches in Civic Stadium in 1975. Um, more than, I think it's 33,000 fans, 30 and 33,000 fans crammed the stadium for games against St. Louis and Seattle. And after the Tony Vitt's famous header to win, um, the crowd swamped the field. There were hundreds, if not thousands, on the field. And that era and that particular time period was when the lap of honour started. Vic had said to us here, look, if we get a victory here, let's go and do a sort of a lap of honour, if you will, to show our appreciation of the fans. And that's what you see today, to this day, at the stadium. Uh, we didn't have the log cutting ceremony quite just yet here. Timber Jim came on board just a bit later. But in that first season, that lap of, lap of honour was special. The fans responded, they stayed in their seats, and basically we did a, a, a slow walk jog around the stadium, yeah. acknowledging their support, which we just thought was, having started with 8,000 in the first game and ending up with 33,000, it was almost a perfect storm.
I'm, I'm near speechless. I didn't know that the Ring of Honor started, uh, the, I'm sorry, the Lap of Honor started in 1975. That what the Timbers do today, and I don't think a lot of people know that, is nope. now a near 50-year-old tradition. And uh, and that was thanks to Vic Crow. Vic knew about the community because he played uh, in the NASL for the Atlanta Chiefs, so he knew the background like I did as well. And he knew that for a first-year franchise to be having these sorts of results and crowds was phenomenal. And so he basically said to us, not just this on other occasions here, let's go and show our appreciation uh, to to the fans. Um, And all of the previously matters that I've spoken about, I have no bones about it. I know why I'm in the Ring of Honor. Nobody told me, but I assume it's because of the work I did in the community as well as playing it certainly wasn't as being one of the best players in the club's history. Uh, I certainly am not that. Uh, but I do, I would, I would put my name against most in terms of the time and the effort that I put into the Portland community, but as well as Denver and Atlanta. And I think the club then wanted to recognize me as not only being the first player to arrive in Portland, but also as the first director of community relations and the amount of work and effort that me initially and others who joined me put into selling the sport and selling the club. Absolutely. Um, and so uh, one small follow-up before I transition, you mentioned Timber Jim. Do you remember the first mascot, Mr. Kickett? Uh, he was a tree playing a uh, trumpet, I think. <laughs> yes. I, I have to laugh because it was uh, – it just felt awkward – and it just felt, uh, it, it didn't feel right. Not for the players and not even for the fans. The fans tried. They started to chant and sing for themselves by their own volition. Mm-hmm. But when Timber Jim came on board, and he's told me the story mm-hmm. of how that came about, which in, in itself is an incredible story, um, to have a personalized mascot now, not somebody in a costume, but a real-life lumberjack, and doing everything they did around the stadium, on and off the field and in the community, gave life to a mascot for us, such that all generations of Timbers fans and Thorns fans can be proud of the work of Timber Jim initially and others since then. Yeah. So thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, and so so here's something interesting. March 31st, 1978, it's the first match of the Timbers 1978 season. It's also your last professional match as far as I could find. So what happened at that point? It's a, you, you played, a, it looks like, a one-game season. That's it. I was in preparation for the season. We had a new coach, Don Megson. Um, and it looked to me, at least, and by the treatment I received from the club previously, which was not the best, um, that my time would be short in terms of playing time. I'd always look for additional opportunities. I'd work knowingly in the community and in commercial opportunities to build a future for myself and our family. And at that particular time here, the opportunity came up to join a company called Blue Ribbon Sports, which later became Nike. It it started initially by an approach to Jimmy Kelly. Jimmy Kelly bumped into Phil Knight Uh, the co-founder and CEO of Nike uh, Blue Ribbon Sports and the head of marketing, Rob Strasher, outside the Benson Hotel 
in downtown. Jimmy came back to practice the next day and said, because he knew that I knew a lot of people in the community, came to me and said, have you heard of this company called Blue Ribbon Sports? I says, no. He said, well, they've invited me <laughs> to have a conversation with them. He goes over and basically asks a friend of mine who I'd arranged to bring to Portland to, to bring a, a schools team over to play against Lake Oswego, a, a gentleman called Tony Penman. Tony and Jimmy then went over, spoke with Nike. Uh, he was offered an endorsement contract with Jimmy. Tony then also then became a consultant as a result of that conversation. And many years later, Jimmy told me that he'd asked them for a certain amount of money to endorse the products. They said, look, we're just cash poor at the moment and stuff, but we'll offer you stock in the future company. Obviously, it wasn't public at that stage. <laughs> but Jimmy tells me many years later in talking to his accountant that that stock would be somewhere in the seven seven figures north. Wow. Uh, and he also had an offer on the table from Sunset Audi to buy to to choose any Porsche on the lot. <laughs> Jimmy being Jimmy, Jimmy went home because he wanted to make a career with Wolverhampton Wanderers. And so that's how I became. So in April, May of 1975, I interviewed with Nike. I became their first full-time employee to start up Nike's soccer business and basically was given a yellow legal pad and a budget of 300000 and basically told, just go and do it. Uh, to which I replied, do what? <laughs> <laughs> they had me speak with other... They had me speak with other people in what they call the promotions department in those days, mostly former athletes who were basically promoting and marketing Nike. People included uh, Sonia Vaccaro, who famously went on to uh, find uh, Michael Jordan uh, in later life. And uh, I listened to those people in track and field, basketball and other sports, and they basically gave me what it is I needed to do, and I set about doing that. It's funny, after talking to Tony Betts one time, I went looking back at uh, he, his one of his last teams, if not his last team, was the Buffalo Stallions, an indoor soccer team. And in the back of the team photo, I can see Tony's feet, and he's wearing Nikes. That's right. Well, one of the things I did uh, when I joined Nike, as we needed additional employees, I, I brought on board uh, Ray Martin from the 75 Timbers, and Tony uh, followed shortly thereafter and became a sales rep in that region because he was at the point in his career where he no longer wanted to tread around the country for another franchise. He was playing indoors in those days. So we invited Tony on board and he became what we call a tech rep, basically supporting the sales force with technical knowledge of the sport as well as the product. So, and Tony went on to a very successful career in sporting good sales, having his mm -hmm. own agency and basically become the, the soccer guy for Puma, amongst others, over the years. So Tony worked for me at Nike, as did Ray. And so I, I engaged players that I knew both from Portland, but I also then uh, hired a guy called Charlie Cook, who played for Chelsea, um, and was very a world-class world player in those days. He came on board afterwards as well. So I hired former players, um, some college, some pro, who knew the sport, and then they could get it, get involved with whatever facet we were, 
at Nike, which was mostly to do with sports marketing, as it's known today. Yeah, and so there's, I feel like we could spend hours talking about just your time starting Nike Soccer and being with that. But there's a 45-year span I want to ask you about. Um, however you want to explore it, if you could tell me what you did from then up to just about when Soccer Solutions came about, because I want to ask you about that next, of course. Yes. Um, well, at Nike, after about, what was that, 1978, I joined them by about 1983, Nike was starting to develop Nike International, and the first president of Nike International uh, was Neil Goldschmidt, the former mayor of Portland. Um, and I interviewed with Neil because he said they needed a sports marketing person for soccer or football, as they call it in Europe. Um, would I be interested? Said yes. Wrote the contract down on a napkin, if you will. My wife and I uh, and, and daughter uh, and son actually moved over to initially to England, where I spent two years working with Nike UK. And then as I traveled around Europe, everywhere from Scandinavia down to the Mediterranean and all countries in between, I, I started projects to do with the sports marketing aspect of soccer. The business of soccer in, in terms of products and sales was dealt with out of a Nike office just outside Amsterdam. And so I spent about three years all told, the first year in England, the second two years in Germany, getting on plane after plane out of Frankfurt, through Schiphol and to every country in between here, talking to players, agents, clubs, federations, leagues, FIFA, UEFA, and had a wonderful time and experience building my knowledge of sport and sporting goods in, in Western Europe. I, I was asked to return to the US by Nike, and when I got back, they asked me to start the business unit for soccer out of Beaverton, Oregon, and basically I said, look, I've just spent three years trying to develop the sport in tandem with all of Nike's subsidiaries and uh, franchisees, if you will, over in Europe. Why wouldn't we have the the office over there with this London, Amsterdam, Frankfurt? I couldn't care. But we, sh we should be in Europe because that was at the heartbeat of the sport. They basically... Mm -hmm. It offered me all the jobs, and I said, look, I think it's about time we just separated here. So with a tear in my eye, uh, I left Nike after about seven or eight years with them here. Um, after a short period of time and doing some consulting for myself, I then was offered the opportunity to become the sports promotions manager for Ombro, which was based in those days in South Carolina. So I worked again for them seven or eight years. And if I look back on each of the companies that I worked for in sporting goods with Umbro, the difference was with Umbro, it was just a soccer company. It didn't sell basketball, running, nothing else. So the daily priority and everybody's focus was on soccer. I was in heaven because that was me. So we worked our way through the soccer pyramid, you know, with pros and leagues, franchises, states, associations, etc. And it was at that time here that I visited um, the World Cup in 1990. So we went there as a sort of, knowing that uh, the Cup was coming to the U.S. in 94, we wanted to make plans as how best we could take advantage of that for the brand of Umbro. And so a small group of us went to Italy for 1990 and worked the entire country and going to host cities and w talking with retailers to 
talking with Nike's franchisee in that country, etc. And we brought that back as gain knowledge in preparation for 1994. Amongst other things, at, at Ombro, we also then signed a contract with Michelle Akers. To my knowledge, that mm -hmm. was the uh, Michelle Akers, the former uh, World Player of the Year, yeah. the US Women's yeah. National Team, played in the 1991 Women's World Cup that the US won. Um, to my knowledge, that was the first time that a female player on a national team had received monetary compensation for endorsing a product line. So that was our first attempt at getting into women's and girls' soccer. Michelle was used basically as the spokesperson for that entire period. And at the same time, then, in preparation for the World Cup in 1994, we signed an endorsement contract with Pelé. And so Pelé and Michelle then, on the men's side and on the women's side, were arguably, arguably the two best players in the world to that time. And so we had this mm -hmm. wonderful opportunity to showcase the Umbro brand and because my president at Umbro in those days, a man called Ian McLaren, who was brilliant, came up with some wonderful ideas and strategies to take on pretty much Addy at that time. This was before Nike heavily invested. Um, and so consequently, we came away from the, the World Cup having involved our retailers, sold product, put Umbro on, positioned Umbro on the stage as a competitor, and, of course, Brazil won the World Cup, which meant then we had the, the world champions in Umbro products in 1994. It was at that time also that I first got involved in managing the contract with CONCACAF, the regional administration for the sport in the Americas, right. Middle America, Mexico, and the Caribbean. Um, that was quite an episode, as you've, as you've learned over the years with all of the issues to do with corruption and uh, money that was going astray here related to World Cups and other large tournaments. One of those, the General Secretary of CONCACAF, was uh, indicted and charged, um, Chuck Blazer, and the president, yeah. now, in, the president in those days, Jack Warner, who was on FIFA's executive committee, is now in Trinidad and Tobago here, uh, contesting an extradition to the United States. So moving in those circles was very, very different to doing business in the United States because corruption was rife, uh, money was changing hands under the table, um, corrupt practices were taken right in front of your nose, and here we were trying to, we were trying to do business legitimately throughout that territory, but it was a wonderful ex experience. Um, following that, uh, in, after 1994, when I left Ombro, I got the opportunity to serve as a consultant with Adidas Global Football Business Unit. Um, mm -hmm. I met with the head of the Global Football Business for Adidas in, at the Atlanta Super Show. And we got on like a house on fire, and so I was retained by contract to do, serve as a consultant for Adidas Global Football. And in doing so, then, was introduced to the CEO of Adidas, at that time the owner of Adidas, uh, Robert Louis-Dreyfus, and mm -hmm. got on well with him. He famously told me in our first meeting, my interview, that he didn't care for consultants. And he said, you've got five minutes to basically convince me that you're worth your money, which I did. And uh, yeah. I, I got on well with him 
the head of sports marketing in, in total, as well as the Adidas Global Business Unit, and did various projects for them, including working at the 98 World Cup, doing market research. I was charged with taking the learnings from the 1998 Cup to the host countries of Korea and Japan for the 2002 World Cup on and off the field, retail sales, communications, hosting, um, players, uh, uh, player servicing, all, all, every facet of the World Cup, we had a group of people pulling together research, and my boss at the Adidas Business Group, he and I put together the plan, which I then took to Japan and Korea, so I spent a couple of years going back from Portland to Japan and Korea to basically work with those Adidas subsidiaries to take advantage of the World Cup coming to their country. So you can see that from 1990, when I went to Italy with Umbro, to 1994, hosting it here with Umbro, to 1998 with Adidas in France, I'd seen what competitors do well and not so well to host World Cups and to increase their soccer business in the host country. So I was able to deliver all of that to Japan and Korea, Adidas, and consequently they had a very successful uh, World Cup in 2002. Um, I was consciously always trying to find opportunities within the companies I worked with to add another string to my bow here. Um, and in, with Adidas, it, it included a program that we put together to try and better identify uh, compatible players and entities to partner with the brand in terms of sponsorships, something that I put together when I was working with my former boss at Umbro, Ian McLaren, when we started a whole project related to brand equity. So with some research from some brand agencies up in New York, we basically put together a program to say, these are the profiles of the players who can best service both on and off the field commercially. Yeah. And these are the reasons why we basically then choose these players, scout these players, sign these players. And I was able to take that knowledge with me when I was working for Adidas, and I worked with the head of Adidas's football sports marketing who himself had been there for 20-odd years at the time and had worked with Horst Dassler, the son of Adi Dassler, uh, as they'd expanded Adidas yeah. throughout the federations across the globe. So that was another program I could deliver to Adidas, and they gave me a special project as well to serve as a liaison with the Adidas businesses in South America and Mexico. Mm -hmm. So I traveled extensively to Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, Bolivia, you name it, and basically then able to bring the best knowledge that we had at that time, how to market Adidas products in the football world in companies that were still growing themselves in their own host country. Yeah. So, so this is interesting to hear that you've just sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, montaged between there's the North American Soccer League as far as national leagues in this country that ends in 1982, uh, Major League Soccer that starts in 1996, and there's a vast desert in there for people of my generation who just started to come to the game when it spread from the North American Soccer League and then come back again, I think, on a larger scale when the World Cup came to the U.S. In there, there was this TV show that I remember here in Portland, Soccer Made in Germany. It happened every Saturday. Um, and on there, 
uh, with someone that you're very familiar with now um, who played for Stuttgart at the time. His name is Jurgen Klinsmann. Um, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with him? And unless I've made too big of a jump there. Um, well, going back to Soccer Made in Germany, I was working for Nike and there was no football on television. It only came around once every four years when they televised the World Cup. So with Nike's support and money, we sponsored, Nike sponsored Soccer Made in Germany on a Saturday on OEPBS, the first broadcast of a, a European soccer league in, in this marketplace here. It, it basically had no commercial worth to Nike at the time, but to to give ourselves a feel of uh, authenticity in the sport and being supportive in the sport, we thought it was inter we thought it was important for young soccer players in, in this area to see soccer at that level, which Soccer Made in Germany did for them. On to Soccer Solutions, whilst working for Adidas as a consultant, uh, Jurgen intended to come to the United States following his very successful career in Europe. Consequently, I was asked to go meet with him down in California, where he then posted himself, where they lived as a family, and had two or three quick conversations with Jürgen, gave him my background, understood him a bit better, wrote him a short paper, if you will, to say, these are your opportunities. Based on what you've told me and what I know of this marketplace, um, these are some of the opportunities available to you. I re remember one in particular was television, because at that time, Jürgen spoke German, French, Italian, Spanish, and English, five languages. So as a former World Cup winner and speaking five languages, I told Jürgen, look, you are the sole person in the United States with that pedigree. If you chose to go to a major broadcast in those days, it, it was ESPN. If you go there, you can actually cross so many markets in Europe and around the world with over 100 appearances for Germany, Player of the Year in England, Player of the Year in, in Germany, having played in all of those countries for top clubs, you, you have that special opportunity. Um, so after consulting with him and coming up with this list of opportunities, he focused on coaching. So my other partner was my former colleague at Ombro and Adidas, Warren Mercero, who, who formed Soccer Solutions with me. Um, we basically then plotted out for Jürgen what those could look like. Do you want to be a technical director? Do you want to own a club? Do you want to be an investor? Or do you want to be, quote, just a coach? He said, quote, just a coach. So <laughs> we approached the Galaxy um, because a friend of mine from Adidas, Doug Hamilton, uh, was the general manager there. And he and Jürgen, myself, Warren, met with the owner of uh, or the CEO of the Anschutz Group, um, and we basically put forward a proposal for Jürgen to become an advisor. Jürgen became advisor. He, he went to practice. He spoke to the players. He worked with the coaches. At that stage, it was Sigurd Schmidt, a uh, fame with the U.S. national team, the Galaxy, and the Sounders. Uh, unfortunately, passed away, but. Uh, we got on well with Siggy, got on well with uh, Doug Hamilton, and basically tried to expand their view. Jürgen could use his network internationally to talk about players and coaches from overseas, etc. And so that was Jürgen's first step on the coaching pyramid here. Um, and then eventually, we worked our way with Jürgen through various sponsorship deals. This was another facet 
to my career, if you will. I'd been a sponsor whilst at Nike, Ombro and Adidas, but I hadn't yet necessarily worked with a, a global non-football brand. Uh, and in the shape of MasterCard, we arranged a contract with Jürgen to be a global sports person for MasterCard to help them in their financial services. All the time, Warren and I were basically showing Jürgen, this is what the sponsors are looking for. When they're dealing with you as a player, this is their expectations of you. So if you're willing and able to do these things here, this will pay off for those people. And our view was the sponsor's view. Jürgen wanted to learn that view because he'd always been on the other side of the table as the endorsee. So MasterCard were a fantastic brand at that time here, and they uh, travelled Jürgen all around the world here for press conferences, product launches, his own MasterCard uh, with his own the photo and signature, etc., building up to certain events like the European Championships. And so all during that time, Jürgen was getting this side of the business understood and gaining experience which would serve him well in the future. At that time, on two separate occasions at least, the U.S. men's national team came calling. On the first occasion, it didn't come off. On the second occasion, it did. And so Warren and I worked with uh, Jürgen in terms of his approach to the national team coaching role. Uh, we'd previously, in 2006, worked with him when he became coach of the German men's national team. And, and our, our work was always in the background. We did things like scouting, depth charts, um, you know, advertising, PR. We all worked in the background with Jürgen because they had those representatives, obviously, of the DFB, as it's called in Germany, and with the U.S. men's national team. So we did a lot of behind-the-scenes work, did Warren and I, that supported him, primarily so that he could solely focus on the coaching aspects. And so for about 10 years, Warren, myself, and Jürgen worked on major global brands like MasterCard, I've mentioned, ESPN mm -hmm. in broadcasting. Um, you know, and even on ESPN, it was a fantastic project. It was down in South Africa. That would have been 2010, I guess. Um, and we would sort of watch the broadcasts, see the interplay between the host and the various analysts, etc., and email over to Jürgen our thoughts good and bad, yeah. he then would share them with the producer, and basically some were adopted and some were not, and at the end of it we put together a final report here yeah. that basically from our perspective, on behalf of Jürgen, presented his perspective. It was always done with his final signature. We didn't do it separately, individually. It was always in consultation with Jürgen, but because of our business background, we were able to add those thoughts to such reports. And consequently, there were few that we knew of, at least, analysts who were bringing that sort of perspective to the table. Most of them were concentrated, if you will, solely on the football analysis. Right. So the soccer solutions thing was very good for me. So I think it was 2012 I retired from that. I'd had enough of planes and trains and automobiles. Uh -huh. I've been on the road since 1970, 71. You know, retired in 2012, so I had my 50 years <laughs> of airports and hotels, yeah. and I just Time had a, I was tired. I just wanted yeah. to be with my family. We had a, a granddaughter in 2012, our son and his his wife, our daughter-in-law, 
had a young uh, uh, girl and we wanted to be around for her. I'm still involved in soccer. I started to volunteer locally, including with the Timbers, and I can tell you a bit about that in a minute. Yeah, um, so I want to do that. I, 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 you know, I hope you don't mind. I have two more questions, but at the end I wanted to just say thank you for coming on. One of the reasons I really want to do this project is stories like this and, and let people know, you know, where we've been as a, as a club um, coming on 50 years now. And you mentioned a lot of things in the background. I had no idea that you um, were behind bringing Soccer Made in Germany here, which for me was the first. There was occasionally some major indoor soccer league on TV, but Soccer Made in Germany was it for outdoor soccer. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I heard from – I was playing in the amateur leagues once I finished with the Timbers – uh, I played 30 years for the same team in the amateur league, and uh, and and players on the opposing teams got to know know about it and would thank me before and after the game. Say that's great, Nick. It's just it's wonderful that we get to see a German Bundesliga game on the weekend. Love it. Thanks very much. And it was kudos to Nike, you know. So it was also establishing Nike as a very supportive partner in the game, as yeah. well as then something that was authentic and credible because. Only somebody with a football background might necessarily know of the void and, and how to fill the void. So that's right. how that worked. Well, it also, um, for a time there, uh, there was a brief Clive Charles and Bernie Fagan soccer camp. Um, yes. I guess you can call it an advertisement for as much as public broadcasting had, but that was further spreading the game and getting people involved because those were very popular camps um, in the 80s and 90s. They were, and... Uh, you know, the work and activities of former Timbers, Clive, Bernie, Tony Betts, Willie Anderson, Bernie Fagan, myself, Brian Gant, John Bain. These are all former Timbers that stayed in the community. They loved Portland, genuinely loved Portland, and worked hard to create opportunities in Portland. People talk about Clive and, and, and what he attained in his career, which is undoubted. It's unquestioned, but they don't know necessarily how hard he worked to create the opportunity. His work in the community with FC Portland, with Reynolds High School, with OYSA, mm -hmm. he laid the foundation for various programs around the state ever before he went to UP. And what he did at UP is history. It's iconic. But people like Bernie, like Tony, like me, like Bill Irwin, like that, we had to work to create an opportunity because unlike the MLS period, there just weren't that many opportunities in soccer. There were fewer colleges, fewer paying high school, fewer, fewer paying club soccer positions, and so camps was the outlet, which obviously Bernie, Tony, uh, very, most of the people, it was a way to make money in the off-season. And you had to supplement the seasonal because oftentimes, especially in the early days, it was a seasonal contract. My first contract with the Timbers ran from April to August. And we were in... That's not a full year, right? Yeah, and we had to find a way. And that's why I worked feverishly off the field, not only because I enjoyed it and I could see the benefit, but also it gave me the opportunity for the club then to offer me an off-season role, a job with pay, which was, if I hadn't had gotten that, I've had to return to England again. You know, so in the early days there, 
you couldn't relax with an annual contract of sufficient funds to keep you going for the rest of the year. And so it, it was, that was the, the, the plight, if you will, of everybody, including Clive. You just had to work your socks off to create opportunities. And as a result, you know, five, six, seven, eight of us stayed here and basically were involved with the growth and development of sports almost at every level from the pros all the way down to youth. Right. Right. And, and also, you know, there's also Jimmy Conway who coached coaches and started uh, at least the program where I went, Pacific University. Um, Absolutely. And Jimmy you, and- I mean, we, we could talk about these guys all day, right? We could do, and Jimmy and Clive were the first two paid professional coaches at the OYSA. Jimmy uh, basically took care of the coaching side of it. Clive took care of the teams. Clive then went to UP. Jimmy remained as a state coach, and Jimmy, over 28 years, conducted thousands upon thousands of clinics and licensing programs, as well as then playing for the Timbers and and, uh, assistant coach in the USL. I mean, his body of work is also the reason why he's the Ring of Honor, so is Clive, you know, and yeah. so is John Bain. And John Bain is still out there today coaching. But there were others that, as well. There are others as well who haven't got that recognition. People like Bill Irwin, people like Brian Gant, just two in particular, that have done 20 to 30 plus years of coaching in the local marketplace here that. People know parts of it, but they don't know all of it, and they talk as though UP started with Clive. Well, not so. There were people that I worked with when I was at the Timbers who helped to forge that program, that laid the path upon which Clive could then build upon a foundation and take it to extraordinary levels. Was it, uh, I hope I don't get this name wrong, Dennis O'Meara? That was Dennis, yes. And Dennis was the first PR director for the Timbers, so I knew him from my Timbers work. Uh, he was a referee, and he was a club coach at Portland State at one stage, and he went over to UP, because that's where his father had gone to school as well as then worked at school and started voluntarily the program, which initially was a club sport, and Dennis was the first varsity coach at the University of Portland, I believe it was 1977. Or maybe... And brought in... Uh... Jim Tercy as well, who's in a, still the leading scorer at the University of Portland on the men's side. Yes, Jim, Jim came to there. I'd met Jim when he was playing for high school out there. Yeah. And when Jim left the University of Portland, he came to me in the sporting goods industry and said, look, I've got this idea. I'm thinking about opening a soccer store. Run me through the pros and cons. We sat at our house here and had a two or three hour conversation. He went away and started Tercy's Sports. And today here, it's Highly, highly successful. Um, But, you know, the connections are many uh, amongst former Timbers, and and that's why the Timbers were a catalyst. They weren't the only thing, but they were the primary catalyst for the development of the sport throughout Oregon. I did some work here for the Oregon Historical Society for the recent uh, uh, exhibition they put on there that traced back the history of the development of soccer in the state of Oregon, and Timbers are in the middle of it. And since then, so are the Thorns. They're here, they're involved, and they're engaged. Yeah. So this is, I I hope you don't mind, I've got two more questions I'd love to ask you. That's fine. Um, And this is, you know, I feel like sometimes when I talk to 
professional soccer players, I want to ask something technical, but I want to use that to sort of jump off because I feel like I could say to you or anybody who played in the NSL, tell me what it was like to strike one of those iconic soccer balls, you know, with the red stars inside the blue pentagons. And you could probably remember it or remember how it bounced off the turf or your foot. Um, Right. But something that really sticks with me when I do talk to people from, you know, anywhere in the NASL, 75 to 82, even a little after when it wasn't the NASL, is that um, they they miss the inclusiveness and the accessibility between the fans. They miss the teammates, of course, but there seems to be of that era a real nostalgia for the fans and for building something together. And I know you mentioned that came, you know, from Dick Crow from the start. And when it comes top down, that's essential. But now in, you know, 2023, how can an MLS club look at a connection like that and, you can't emulate it because there's there's not as blank a canvas, but there's something essential at the core of that. Billy, I had worked for three great international brands, Nike, Ombro, and Adidas. And through that process, I was learning on the job, having started with no license or degree or experience in that industry, I had to play catch-up. And just like I was on the field... I was like blotting paper. I soaked in everything I could. I asked all the questions here. I experimented. I revised my mistakes. And I tried to progress myself with each company that I joined. And therefore, I got involved with brand building with three global uh, world-class companies on, on the matter of brands. I can talk to the Nike piece a bit mostly. But, you know, it was started with uh, Phil Knight and with Bill Bowman down at U of O. But right from the start there, as I joined Nike, I learned that the essence of a brand essentially comes from its founders. And so many of the traits of Nike portray the essence of Bowman and Knight combined and then others that join the brand. As they brought people on board, they they brought like-minded people in terms of values, in terms of what people held to be important. So they built a small army of like-minded people. And in the case of Bowman, as you know, he's an athletics coach par excellence. He's part of the reason that jogging in the United States started. Um, But he's also a great innovator. So in terms of product innovation, Bellman had his role to play. Knight was an exceptional financial and business person. So the two of them between them, adding other people in various facets of the business, developed a brand that reflected their personality. Consequently, I can can go back to 75, reflect upon that and say, look, we had, I think the list was like 20 to 30 people strong of Timber's owners for the start of the franchise. And right from the start, those people were inclusive. The game was open to everybody. They did that by appropriate prices for tickets, where families, and particularly women, started to come to the game, and children started to come to the game because it was affordable. We had open practices, you know, where fans could come and see the players in practice, walk up to them, get a photo, get an autograph. We had post-game receptions down at the Hilton or the Benson where players could uh, fans could come up to you after the game and talk about the game again photo autograph as well particular instances in the game they did so many things that served to include people and 
these people who were modestly successful business people, not of the national or international caliber, but locally very well thought of and very well resourced, impressed upon us is, you've got to sell this game. You have to promote this game. You have to show the fans and everybody you meet with, with respect and trust. And we want to be accessible. We want the community and the fans to think they can be part and parcel of this club. Now, from my time in branding, I know that a business transaction is a value proposition. I bring a certain value to the table. We're the Timbers. We provide entertainment and sport and excitement. And you, the fans, support us with your purchase of tickets, merchandise, etc. But in that transaction, you get a greater connection if the, your values of a club are evident in the way that you work in the community and that your fans and supporters then see those values and say, you know what, that's the way I feel too. I'm, uh, I'm at one with my club. That's why I'm so proud of them, because this is the way they operate, etc. What I would say, it's become evident in the last few years, unfortunately, both on the men's and women's side of the business here, that many fans feel betrayed in terms of the values they share with the club. Those values of uh, affordability, uh, exclusivity or inclusivity, uh, accessibility, trust and respect, many of those things feel as though those connections have been broken. And I speak to many fans. You know, yeah. they know who I am, they know my background, so I can talk openly with them here. They can share with me, members of the Timbers Army, season ticket holders, guys who play on my amateur team. I have a big, wide community of people. And I think there's a disappointment now from some fans, not all fans, but some fans, in terms of how they, in terms of their values, are represented by the club and its values. The people know the specific instances I'm talking about in terms of the cases that have come up over the last three or four years. And I think that to some degree there's a disconnection between the supporters today as well as. That's why you see the certain banners in the stadium for games imploring right. the club to do A, B and C. Um, and for me personally, I felt that disconnection. I was recommended to, the, to Mike Golub, who became the president of the club, when he first took on board, 2010, I think, 2011, I was recommended, he was recommended to sit down with me and to talk through the history of the club. I did so, and I gave him a local perspective, a national perspective, and an international perspective. I was happy to do that because, in my mind, it's, I am one of many who can say, it's my club. Um, yeah. And Mike took advice. He never... He never pretended to know about the sport. He openly said he didn't, and he was happy for the valued uh, perspective that I was able to give to him. Pretty much since that day, I've not been consulted in terms of any of the facets of the club's operations. Now, when I say I, I also talk with many of the former Timbers who, from my generation, the NASL generation, John Payne, Bill Irwin, Brian Gant, Willie Anderson, Tony Betts, uh, Jimmy Kelly, um, or Seamus Kelly these days, uh, I talk with them and they feel the same disconnection. 
And it's not just a matter of free tickets or, you know, us being showcased as something special, etc. It's just a lack of any connection. Uh, Tony Betts shared with me recently that he went home to England to go to Aston Villa. He contacted Aston Villa to get tickets for him and his son. He said after they checked out that he actually was indeed a former player, Tony would be the first, and I'm certainly included in that. We were never big time at Aston Villa. Brian Godfrey and Willie Anderson were, and Peter with certainly so. Um, Tony says they treated him like royalty. Tickets, parking pass, uh, position in the, in the board seats, and his son was blown away by the generosity and the hospitality that they showed to his dad, who was in the history of Aston Villa, like myself, barely recognised on the scale. If you contrast that with the reception that former Timbers get here, I put forward a programme to, to, to start an alumni programme. I worked with Gavin Wilkinson, I wrote it down, gave it to them, suggested this and the other. It went nowhere. The only thing that happens is on occasions of the 40th anniversary or uh, like the other day, the uh, Timbers bring you on we get drawn in as though we're just you know secondary to the to the process with no continuity in between now great clubs have active alumni great universities do great companies do where people get together they celebrate their time at the company they basically have you know golf tournaments banquets annual get-togethers every 10 years all that sort of stuff it's established here it's not only a source of revenue for a club in this question, but in our sport, it's also these players who've played for the Timbers are spread around the globe. And so they, you can have global ambassadors for the brand if you engage them on an ongoing basis. But when you don't speak to them from one year, five years, ten years here, the players are left to their own devices in terms of their connection with the club. I think that's sorely missing. I've made the offer to every person that's come on board as the Director of Community Relations to share my knowledge of the history of how the club was built, piece by piece, the values it basically purported, and the values the fans bought into, and where that breakdown is. I've shared that with the opportunity to speak to that, but that's never been taken up. Not by the owner, not by general, general managers or presidents, not by the director of community relations, none. And, and I'm one. There's 10, 12, 15 of us who have all of those... Exp you want to talk about youth soccer in the state of Oregon? Talk to John Bain. You know, yeah. talk to John Bain. You want to talk about high school and women's soccer? Talk to uh, Brian Gant. You want to talk about college soccer? Talk to Bill Irwin. You want to talk about commercial and sales in, in the city of Portland? Talk to Willie Anderson. Talk to Tony Betts. Yeah. You know, we've got people who have such a wonderful depth and breadth of experience. You want to know about sporting goods? Talk to me, which many of them do. But it's not cultivated on an ongoing and regular basis. I think that's an incredible resource as an example to everybody that joins the Timbers. Whether you're in the academy or the young South America, American player coming north, if you want to know what this club stands for and has stood for when it's been successful as well as today, you need to know the history. And I always say, Billy, is when you kiss that badge, 
know what's behind the badge. Yeah. And yes, you can see the crowd, and yes, you can see the Timbers Army, and yes, you can see the log cutting, but you don't necessarily know, in fact, I'd suggest you don't know, of what it took to get to this point in time where you can join the club from Argentina, Uruguay, or wherever. You, you, should have, you should have that knowledge in your back pocket so that you can mm. relate better. Now then, as, as salaries have increased to the point where now they're livable and for some very good, uh, there's less of a need for the support group. We as Timbers in 75 needed supporters because they'd offer a refrigerator, a car, you know, a, a holiday, yeah. a vacation. We needed them because... So meagre was our salaries at the time here that we were on the same sort of salaries as the fans we spoke to. Many of the Timbers today are on a different level. Consequently, my sense is there's less of a connection because there's less of a need of the supporters from the players. That might be wrong. That might be completely wrong. I know that certain players, including Diego Valeri, etc., do wonderful work in, in, in the community. I do wonder how many players will continue to live here beyond their career, which is one of the outcomes of signing players from overseas. As the Brits return to Britain, you know, so might too the Argentinians and Uruguayans, etc. They might too return. And so their presence and effect in the community is no longer the same as it was when we had six, eight, ten guys working in the soccer community. And also the community has advanced, it's progressed. So the needs of 75 are not the same as uh, 2023, but there are still needs in the soccer community that players and the club can help facilitate. And if you have less communication and somewhat of a disconnection between alumni and supporters groups here, lots of that works goes by the wayside. So, so Nick, I have a I have a question with this. I want to follow up. It's the last question I have, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so I've you know I, I'm seeing the Timbers now through the eyes of a ten year old because I have a ten year old son who this season has, you know, really become aware of what's there. He you know he's painted Tifo. He's done the pit you know helped with Operation Pitch Invasion. He wants to go to games. He's he loves Dario Zuberitz because we're Croatian, right? Like we, he's making connections. Uh, on his own, and I see the game, and so I look ahead. In two years, the 50th anniversary for the Timbers is coming, and that's a really short time when you think about. As I'm guessing, I, I don't know what I'm talking about, but hopefully you'll corroborate sports marketing or planning for something. What What are the opportunities there to connect with culture and identity that uh, you know that's going to set the stage for him and his kids going forward? That's coming up uh, with this 50th anniversary. Oh boy. Uh, it is my area, I wouldn't say of expertise, but of experience. Um, typically what you did and what the Timbers did, for example, when the, when the MLS All-Star Game came to Portland, is they formed a committee of various constituencies in the town, from civic to sporting to sponsors to, to former players in the shape of I was on that panel. It was chaired by uh, Merritt. Um, you know, you prepare for what then became a week of activities in the host city of Portland to showcase Portland and its club to the world across this country and internationally. The same should be the 
for a 50th anniversary. And in business, you're normally talking if you're in sporting goods 18 months to two years out to prepare for new products and launches of products. So we're within that time frame now where something actively should already be in place in terms of a committee, in terms of engaging the various constituencies from supporters to sponsors to broadcasters to alumni, you name it. They need to be brought together and you choose a theme you create a logo, you decide whether it's a week-long event, whether it's a month, whether it's an entire year, and you space your events through that, um, throughout that time period accordingly. And this one appeals to this constituency, this one appeals to that. But it's quite simple. You do things like golf tournaments. You could play soccer golf, which is popular. Uh, you could play, you certainly have a, a, a banquet. You create event merchandise for the participants as well as for sale at retail. You do a plan for media, television, special programs, video commemorations, interviews, podcasts, websites. And you work with the city as well as the state for the proclamation of the 50th anniversary, Timbers Day, Timbers Week, Timbers Year, whatever it is. Um, and you create then... Uh, 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 this extensive and you keep in mind first of all who are we targeting this specific event to and in many of these cases it might be the city for some it might be the general community for others it might be the business community commerce and sponsorship it certainly is for supporters and how you can engage with them it's for the current fans it's for the current players it's for former players it's a wonderful opportunity to lay down a marker to say we are 50 years old. The problem with that is there have been too many disconnects in the history of the club, which is fact to start with because the NASL went away, USL came, USL went away, and then came MLS. So there's very little continuity between those three generations. If you had a working alumni group, you could bridge that with the alumni from each of those eras, and that's why I'm disappointed in, in the lack of activities to have done that over the first, what, 11 years of this franchise, etc. Um, but you then got to appeal, and you've got to make a statement to the city, the league, the country, and internationally to say, we are Portland Timbers. And we've now taken our place in, in the U.S. sports universe as well and then we are now part of a global soccer community and when global soccer institutions do this it's a big big commemoration and celebration of a 50th year or a 100th year in some cases and it's it's a month or it's a whole season long with right. ways to interface and you know that, that you can put you know put a statue outside marking 50 years you know, celebrate the fans by a statue. We're always talking about which player should be celebrated with a statue or not, and which player, what about fans? What a collective, you know, a collective statue of fans, because they're at the root, or they are the base of support for this club, and its success, etc. So you want to go into all those facets, and you want to leave something behind, I'll mention this specifically. You, you maybe want to leave behind something connected to the 50 years that will go into the future as a legacy event or facet, you may well, one of my dreams has been that we'd have an Oregon soccer center 
that would be multiple pitches, buildings, offices for everybody engaged in the game here, restaurants, bar, you name it, parking, the usual stuff. Many places around the country have such soccer centers where their whole sport comes together around the city or around the state. Oregon, I would love to see that so that you could drive to the heartbeat of soccer in Oregon and interface with people from indoor, outdoor, women, college, youth, you name it. They all come there. It's our center because it then becomes a statement to the state. This is me as an evangelist still after 50 years. I want that people in Oregon finally give soccer the sport the respect it deserves. I came at a time where you considered communistic if you were playing soccer. You were a foreigner right. and you were communistic. It's grown and grown to the extent that everybody's familiar with it, but I still speak to too many people that don't respect the sport. Oftentimes because they don't know the sport, they haven't played the sport, they haven't gone to a game, they don't want to understand the nuances. I would love to see a soccer centre that came about after 50 years of the sport. It might not be built now, it might take us 10 years, but 10 yeah. years from now, that's where soccer is housed. The other sports don't need it because it's in the hearts and the generations of people anyway. Basketball, it's in the hearts. Baseball, same thing. Football, they don't need it yeah. because their sports are already interwoven into the heart and spirit of the nation. Soccer is yet to get there. It's getting there, it's progressing, but I want to see it happen here right on our own doorstep and involving, quote, my own club. So, Mick, uh, I just, again, thank you for this, to be able to sit down and talk about soccer for the last 50 years, um, not just here, but, but globally, and just what it means to be a uh, Portland Timber and involved in the game and the legacy that's been created and is being left, not just for me, I benefited from it greatly, but, you know, my son and future generations. It's an exciting time, uh, as always, to be part of the Portland Timbers community, but I really appreciate your time, and I, I just want to say thank you for uh, you know, you and, and your, you know, your contemporaries, what you did for the game. And thanks for taking the time today to share that with us. Well, it was my pleasure. It was a privilege. Um, I'm glad to tell the start of the, the Timbers and soccer in Oregon from the mid-70s. Um, and I know as you go out and speak to other former Timbers from that generation, as well as from the USL period and, and into the future from the Thorns representatives too, you'll get to find that soccer in Oregon is a rich tapestry uh, that started before the Timbers in 75, but Timbers certainly acted as a catalyst. And for myself personally, starting in 1971 in Atlanta, I've always had at, in my heart the, the, the drive to try to continue to sell the sport of soccer for, for what it's given me and others in the game um, which is a career in the sport and a wonderful life around the world connected with soccer. And that's, that's true also in the way that the Timbers now have taken their position, not only in Portland and Oregon, but across the country and around the world. When I went home to England, my brother told of Timbers fans in his local area. So the word's out, the Timbers are a special franchise and so is soccer in Oregon due to the nature of our city as well as then our supporters 
um, that we have something unique and special to tell in terms of a story. And I think it's time to be so told. And what a great opportunity that would be for the 50th anniversary in 2025. Perfect. Thank you so much, Mike. Okay. You ain't got to be 200 pounds or a giant at 7-3 To play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly You can hear it on the radio, you will see it on TV But when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee Green is the colour, soccer is the game We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim so let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be.